Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. This is a very exciting moment. It's the release of my 100th episode. We'll have releases for you every day this week to celebrate this momentous occasion, since I have now officially spent over 100 hours talking rubbish on podcasts with a vast range of incredible guests. And I'd like to say thank you for anyone who listened over the past three years. I hope it wasn't too painful and that my podcasting has improved since episode one with Jen Senko. My guests today are Colin St. John and Milan Cordestani from The Doe. The Doe is a fantastic website dedicated to allowing people to tell anonymous stories without fear of repercussion and is something that I believe is incredibly important in today's society where whistleblowers are often demonized, doxxed or harassed. If you haven't already, check out their website and give them a follow on Instagram. Their graphics are as stunning as the stories. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the links in the description below. So here's Colin and Milan. Um, Colin, Milan, it's a, yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on my show. Thanks for having us. Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've, I came across the, the dough, oh, it must have been earlier this year, maybe March or April. And yeah, I was uh, uh, just like visually straight away, like really, really struck me. It's like it really jumps out at you compared to maybe other other sort of news or media outlets. Like, was that was that a big thing for you at the start that you wanted to like really, you know, wow people visually? So I think the visually the conversation was how can we do something better than what everyone else is doing or not to say that everyone else is doing something wrong. But I think traditionally a lot of the publications out there have a very um uh, you know, linear, they all look the same in terms of how their sites function. And they all have this old newspaper style look, not all, but a lot of them. And, um, yeah, we definitely wanted to, you know, be innovative there and and change it up. So we, um, we went for a different, more, um, ambitious type of site design. Hmm. So why, why the dough? Where'd the name come from? So uh, it's tied to the idea of being anonymous. So John and Jane Doe, uh, you know, being the the pseudonyms for a person you can't identify. So that was the idea. We took Doe and made it the Doe. It was funny when I joined. I I didn't get it. I didn't get it like right away when I was like applying for my job. And I think a lot of people think like deer, like a doe. Yeah, that's why um, I was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, of- yeah, but. Um, Especially in America, um, a John Doe is just an anonymous person. And, and I think once that clicks um, with our users, they they realize how cool of an idea it was to, to name the site that. Mm. So uh, did yeah. you have a, a lot of journalistic experience before before you started? Like, what, what, are, you, what are your backgrounds? So myself, I don't have much of a journalistic background. The only background I guess I have was when I was around 16 years old, I started writing for the Huffington Post. Um, about the agriculture industry and a couple other topics. And then um, when they shut down that platform, that was kind of, you know, along that path was when, you know, uh, I dream up, dreamt up the idea for the dough of having this place where, um, you know, people can come and publish anonymously so that they can put ideas forward out in the world that otherwise couldn't exist and so that people can talk about things that they otherwise couldn't. Um, but, you know, it was a very uh, obvious 
decision at the time that was like, okay, well, I need someone in here who actually knows something or two about um, journalism. And so, you know, Colin St. John is a veteran here. He can tell you about his background. Yeah. Um, actually, I grew up in a journalism household. My father was in the newspaper business in Denver, Colorado. He was um, the food and wine critic here. So we always got to go out to uh, restaurants uh, four nights a week. Kind of people are always like, that sounds like a dream job, dream job, Bill St. John. And my dad was always like, well, I gain about 30 pounds a year and then I have to lose it. And, uh, so I, I kind of grew up in the newsroom of the Rocky Mountain News when I was graduating from college. I uh, was a philosophy major and uh, I got an internship at Rolling Stone magazine in New York City and I uh, went from there. So I've been in journalism for over 15 years now, worked at um, several publications, was on staff as a reporter at Time Out New York. Uh, some of the European visitors or listeners probably know Time Out. Uh, you know, it's all over Europe. Um, and yeah, I've written for Rolling Stone and Esquire and Deadspin and lots of other places. So it was really cool to kind of take my previous editorial experience and and uh, plot out a future uh, with this company and, and, and uh, uh, you know, kind of develop our ideas uh, going forward uh, with editorial and product. So how did you guys meet? Like how, what, what like brought you together? Um, so we put out a, um, a post, I think in the Denver, what, what is it called? My yeah, my job was Denver Egotist, which is was uh, it's mainly for advertising copywriting. I've done some advertising copywriting in my career as well, um, and uh, I responded to it, and it went from there. There are actually a lot of team members who are one connection away from somebody, and so there's a, a bit of a family, even though we're remote right now and being forced to be even more remote than we'd like, of course. Uh, but uh, I didn't know Milan before, so it's. Uh, Almost, nice. almost everyone on the team we've kind of met through someone we knew, but I think Colin was definitely, you know, um, cold, cold email meeting. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, sometimes they're the best, like you get just sort of random connections because, but you know, knowing people is also helpful. You can kind of vouch for, for someone's work ethic or the kind of stuff they'll do. It's helpful to have like that, that, that kind of recommendation. Like I, I don't ever envy anyone who has to try and put together a team of people from scratch like the. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely a challenge. I mean, I, I, I won't lie. I mean, like we have in startup mentality or in startup world, you kind of go through people very quickly to build the team that you need to build something. Cause it's um, like the, the metaphor that's used a lot is like you're, you're falling out of a plane and building the parachute as you go down. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of how it is. It's like you bring in people and you hope that they can um, adapt as you grow and, and scale with you. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty lucky now that we have a really good team that is um, able to, you know, keep scaling us and, and keep growing with us. So yeah, very thankful for this. So like, what actually led to the idea of, of the dough? Because you, as you, you kind of touched on there, it's all about anonymity and, and providing like an, a platform for, for anonymous um, anonymous sources or anonymous stories. Like, what gave you that idea? Yeah, so when I stopped writing for the Huffington Post, um, well, I used to go back. I There was this concept of writing articles a lot, and that's everyone does it. Everyone writes articles for all these publications. Um, and I did it as well for the Huffington Post for 
know, I think like four or five articles. And uh, when I stopped doing that, there was a realization I had that was like, I don't actually care about the majority of the articles I read. And I don't even care about the majority of articles I write sometimes. <laughs> um, I feel like as, a, as like a, you know, as a contributor on a lot of sites, you just like put out content for the sake of putting out content. And so, um, you know, I started changing what I wrote to be more meaningful to me. It was personal life experiences. It was family members and what they were going through, work life experiences, entrepreneur hardships, whatever it was. And, um, you know, when I went to go and put those out into the world, being like, okay, the only option was really medium or to get a contributor portal somewhere like you know an opinion column somewhere um and then on the other side of the spectrum was if i wanted to put these out anonymously um i'd have to go to somewhere like wikileaks which is just not the place um you know they were these you know classified government documents not not someone's story and so that was the idea was like okay there is a world of people who have really important things to share um they can you know writing that can really spark meaningful conversations and meaningful discourse uh, but there's some reason they don't feel comfortable sharing it whether it's you know they they want to keep their name safe and they don't want to put their career at risk or get doxxed um, or it's something really personal and involves family members or involves um, you know their personal identity and their their relationship with their race or whatever it is um, you know a lot of those struggles and those um, life stories and narratives um they needed a place and so that's kind of why we built the dough so do you have yeah, and I, I, yeah oh sorry no i was about to say go ahead colin yeah i uh it's been very uh thrilling and, and enlightening to see that this idea has gained the amount of traction that it has and i'm seeing stories from edit from an editor perspective that i've never seen before and anywhere else. Um, and that I just don't really know where they'd live without us. Um, especially once I start to, to develop relationships with the writers and they keep coming back with more stories, um, and they keep, um, becoming part of our network, um, our secret network in a lot of ways. Uh, it's been, uh, been quite the experience to see, uh, how that's developed. Yep. I mean, there's gotta be quite a lot of, um, not demand, but there's there's definitely got to be some people like trying to figure out who these these people are who are who are providing the stories. Like if you had, I don't know, maybe not cyber attacks, but if you had any sort of people, I don't know, demanding or or, or saying you need to tell us who these where these stories are coming from. Like if you have you experienced that at all? I mean, we see it on social. You know, we have a pretty robust Instagram following, and you'll see some comments that I wouldn't say they've gotten into threatening territory yet, but I think that's can be a somewhat subjective <laughs> uh, idea in the social media realm. Um, you know, for the most part, I think w the way that we've talked about civil discourse and about being unbiased and about, uh, you know, just trying to show, show everyone all sorts of different perspectives. I think that that gives our readers, uh, you know, the idea to kind of, be respectful um and uh, for the almost entirely they they, they fall they follow suit um and i will say i'd also like to you know give a shout out to our you know tech department we are super secure um i'm the only one who knows who most of these people are um and you know we're just never gonna we you know we've said it a million times and we'll continue to say that we'll, we'll, we would never share the identity of one of our 
of one of our writers under any circumstances. Mm. I mean, the anonymity side of things is really interesting. There's, there's, there's at least like three, four, five people I can think of just straight off the top of my head that I would beg if I could get, I, if I knew I would have a chance to get them to like give me their story on, on just even just like little local stuff in, in Northern Ireland, people working inside like the health service or in, in trade unions and just, they tell me this like stuff that's going on, like just either corruption or complete contradiction of the values that uh, like an organization is, is meant to uphold. And but the, the chance of, of, because there's so many people I would say inside almost every organization who who have something to say who would like it to be public about about what's going on especially once you be, like move into more powerful institutions and, and corporations and there's yeah you, i think you really identified like a place where there was no there was no outlet for those kind of people apart from maybe anonymous sources within like reporting but even then like to get that story out there then it's difficult for traditional newspapers to try and rely solely on anonymous sources because they well, they get called fake news. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think it's definitely a challenge. I mean, uh, we I think one of the ones that was similar to what you're describing was going after like a USPS worker to talk about their experience um, working for like the US Postal Service. Um, and uh, Colin can tell you more about that. But in general, like we wanted, that was one of the, the, the key factors I think we discussed in the beginning was that there should be this large range, right? We don't just want a bunch of celebrities and 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 you know pseudo famous people just having a way that they can reach the masses still um but anonymously and sharing their opinion it was meant to be everyone right the small business owner all the way up to that person mm. um and then just to touch on the the last question you asked about the uh the the hate i guess that we we get i mean it's <laughs> interesting because while we do get a lot of really great discourse the hate that comes is actually very often from people who don't understand what the dough is and they think that the article or the narratives that we're publishing um, are us it's our opinion it's us sharing this and saying yeah we believe x which we don't do right we're sharing other people's narratives we're the you know we're the platform um you know for lack of a better word and so the people that understand that love it they you know we get so many comments and even today we, we were just talking about a dm someone sent us thing like we see all the hate and we still love you for what you do, even though we don't agree with everything you published. You know, that's kind of, um, that's kind of our bread and butter. Hmm. Did you want to like talk a little bit about that UPS or USPS? Oh, well, so there's this, I, yeah, there's <laughs> just like any publication, whether it's the New York times or the Washington post or the local, uh, yeah, Belfast, um, Telegraph, <laughs> telegraph, yeah. or you know something, you know even just uh, you know a neighborhood newspaper. I'm in Colorado here in Denver. Uh, you run up against bureaucracy, and so part of my job and part of what I do here, and I have a a good team with me as well doing this, going after stories. We get a lot of inbound stories, uh, but we go after stories too. Um, we you do run up against bureaucracies and you know we during um the you know civil unrest here this summer uh, in the states we we decided that it would be only fair and just if we had us all different perspectives from blm uh from police officers from protesters from protesters against the protesters and you know we we ended up getting some good stories from police officers 
but it took a while and it was difficult because most police officers are bound by their contract, at least in the United States, not to speak to the media directly. You have to go through a chain of command to speak to the media. We were lucky enough to get a few police officers who circumvented that. And I mean, I'm sure they violated their contracts, <laughs> but that's not, you know, the, the, they'll, like I said before, ne- that, that uh, will never see the light of day on our end. Um, and it's the same with the postal service. It's the same with a lot of government agencies, but, you know, we were lucky enough to get a person who works inside uh, the U S government with the Trump administration to write a piece for us last month. And, you know, we keep digging just like any good, um, outlet would uh and we also the more traction we get the more good stories we get the higher profile people who are who are coming to us uh and want to want to blow their whistle how much like background check and sort of verification of of the stories do you have to do before you you will say okay like we believe you we're gonna put this out it's a great question um it's extremely important to me uh nothing could be worse or more embarrassing for our site if we were exposed that somebody weren't was not who they say they are um so it's a case-by-case basis um we i have several tools i use um you know some of it's as simple as knowing who the person is because you've you know they're maybe they're they're famous to a certain degree or you've read about them in the newspaper many times and you're like well i'm talking to this person um that happened with a member of George Floyd's family, for instance. Uh, I knew that this person had been on TV. I knew that this person had um, been in newspapers. And when I talked to this person, I uh, quickly identified this person as the person who they said they were. <laughs> okay. So, um, you know, but other than that, you know, I'll dig in. I'll look through therapists' uh, files uh, that people send me, medical records, um, text messages, photographs, social media profiles are really um, useful uh, because you it's kind of astonishing to see how much information people are willing to share about themselves <laughs> on their social media profiles uh, that makes it really easy to verify that they are who they say they are. So yeah, case by case. And, you know, I take it every, even if it's kind of a lighthearted piece um, that doesn't have international <laughs> consequences i still want to make sure that that person is who they say they are so yeah so like one of the things you have on on the on the site is like you're up in your about section is the the phrase civil discourse is broken like like, do you want to explain what what you sort of mean by that like because that that could yeah that could be quite a a vague statement (laughs) yeah um so the basically I, I guess I should, we should maybe preface it or somehow make it more specific to say, like, this is kind of the view mostly in the US, but I don't know. Maybe it's no, not, it's, it's, no, it's pretty similar here in the, uh, well, in the UK anyway. We, we, I, yeah, like we're, we're not, we're not yeah. far behind. <laughs> so, I mean, it's this idea that there is a loss of civility and, and ability to have really productive conversations with someone that you disagree with. Um, and I think, it used to exist, the, this idea that was stemmed in an idea of um, uh, it stemmed from, you know, an excitement about being having free speech and the ability to have differing opinions and still be able to communicate. I feel like that's been lost. And so that's where that stems from is this idea that, you know, civil discourse is broken, meaning that people can't look at an idea or hear a perspective or see a different way of thinking and discuss it and maybe come up with 
you know, a common ground solution or just even a common ground way of living from that moment forward and being okay with each other. Um, and so that that's kind of, I think, what I would define a civil discourse being broken, but I'm sure almost everyone at the company would have their own, you know, interpretation of that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think especially with our politics, our, our theme last month was politics leading into the election. We're just seeing a polarization here. I mean, even if you look at the vote tally, <laughs> it's pretty... It's pretty clear that Biden is the is the winner objectively, but that doesn't mean that 70 million people didn't vote for Donald Trump. And so um, I think what we do that makes things more palatable, accessible, objective is we take the person, the, the person's background away to a certain degree. Of course, they talk about their background and their art and their pieces, but I think it's harder to go after a person, vehemently disagree with them, have vitriolic um, sort of reactions to somebody if you don't really know who they are, if there is an anonymous uh, aspect to it. Um, I think it makes, at least when I'm reading through these pieces, and it's my job to do so, it's, hmm. what a job, right? <laughs> um, I, I see things, I see arguments in a different way than I, than I have previously um, when I read, you know, if if uh, Mike Pompeo writes an op-ed in the New York Times, I'm going to go into it with preconce- preconceived notions about who this person is, his history, his politics, and uh, those are things that we strip away. I, I think in a in a meaningful way that can lead to uh, better conversations surrounding the ideas themselves than who the person may or may not be. Mm. Is there something like really like well, what? What thing do you think is you've changed your opinion on most? Maybe there's not a, like a really specific example you can think of, but like, is there is there something that you have really changed your mind on, like really gone 180 on an issue or like you didn't think you would ever consider it differently until you read like a certain piece? So the one thing that I've heard a lot from users and maybe from myself as well, or readers, I shouldn't call them all users, but um, we published an article from, I believe it was an individual with autism and and. The, the boy was describing his experience living with autism. And we heard from a lot of users, um, you know, or again, readers coming back to us and saying like, wow, this really changed my perspective. I had no idea what it was like, or I always assumed that this person was just being ridiculous or acting out in this kind of way. I didn't realize it was, you know, how they viewed the world and how, um, you know, the situations that make them anxious or whatever it is. And it was this really interesting moment of seeing like, okay, wow, this is a really... Uh, we actually change the way people see other human beings and the way that they are now going to go and interact with other human beings. Um, so I think that was a really powerful moment to that. Yeah. And I think for my part, you know, I'm, I have to have kind of a short, short term memory cause I got to move. So we do a monthly theme and for, you know, this month is acts of kindness, which is, you know, meant to be kind of a palate cleanser, like getting over the election here in the U.S. and like realize that other people are are, are can be good mm. to one another. Yeah. Um, and we're working on next month, which is science and tech. So I sort of am, live very much in in the in the present, like the, like uh, the Buddha would want me to. Uh, hmm. But looking back on last month, I think in an overall, you know, high high level picture. I, I did have, and you know, I was raised uh, in a 
household where my parents were Democrats and, you know, fairly liberal uh, city here in Denver. And I used to live in New York City and so on and so forth. I think I learned a lot about what Trump supporters uh, are feeling, what they're upset about um, and, uh, you know, who they are and that they they're just, you know, people trying to make it uh, make a go of it here, too. There was a particular article written by a Canadian journalist for us who has been to uh, a lot of Trump rallies. And uh, I think he did a really good job of, you know, explaining kind of the insanity of the entire affair. I've actually been to a Trump rally myself, so I sort of was seeing um, it through his words. Um, and but, you know, he, the other thing he did besides kind of doing a, a good job of managing to describe the circus environment of those things, he also talked about the humanity of bonding with some of these folks who weren't um, politically aligned with him. And, uh, and I think that that is something that we need more and more here uh, from, from everybody uh, to, you know, kind of move forward and get over yeah. <laughs> some of our preconceptions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's something like I, I've really been struck by actually the last, the last week, just as soon as, as soon as the, it became clear that, that Joe Biden was, was going ahead um, in uh, Pennsylvania and, and Arizona, and that it was just it was it was pretty much over. Like pending some very optimistic lawsuits on the part of the Republicans. Um, <laughs> but like w the thing that struck me was that they a lot of the Democrats were just like, okay, we've won, that's it. We don't have to worry about about the seventy million people, like you said, that that voted for 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 Trump. Like, w what was your your perspective on? on like what was what was driving that from from their point of view just from because i i'm really curious as to exactly what it was because I, I can see that they're missing something but i i i haven't a hundred percent put my finger on it yet i think that i'll just say and by the way is it just one quick is it pretty heavily covered there are you guys paying pretty close attention i've been reading some articles about paying attention to the election around the world. Yeah, it's no, the it's, it is. There. It's in the news a lot. And then I... I've, it's kind of annoying. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> it's like, I want to live my life. Yeah, but I mean, I follow it quite closely generally just because um, I am a big fan of um, Joe Rogan's podcast and the intellectual uh. dark web generally. I just, I, I, I don't agree with all of them, but I, I love their discussions. And right. um, so, therefore, I would I would follow a lot of what what they're saying about it, and and uh, also I think the UK is like five to ten years behind America in terms of culture um, and politics mm -hmm. generally. Like we, you, you tend to just be a little bit further of us. So I kind of look at it as it as looking looking down the road as to what might happen. Yeah, I would say here's just, I mean I've been paying close attention, so this is just my opinion, of course. Mm -hmm. But I would say. I think Joe Biden himself has done a really good job in his messaging about bringing the country together. And he talks a lot about how I'll be the president of everybody. I'll be the president of those who didn't vote for me. Um, what I will say about Democrats in general, and maybe, <laughs> maybe that's not really the right way to put it, but I think there is an, a somewhat understandable, um, sort of bad taste in the left in the mouth of a lot of Democrats because of the way that the Trump administration and Mitch McConnell have acted um, in the last four years. And in particularly, in particular with the judicial nominations mm -hmm. um, uh, at the beginning of the administration, why denying uh, 
you know, here at the hearing for, at the end of Obama's administration, Merrick Garland, and, and then at the end of the four years uh, by replacing uh, Ruth uh, <clears throat> Justice Ginsburg right after her, her death, uh, you know, seven days before the election. So I think there's a sense of the Republicans aren't playing by the rules. Why we need to play by the rules? Um, but that's not going to get us anywhere long term. That's not I don't I think that's short sighted thinking. Um, in terms of the half the country, you know, uh, didn't vote, didn't vote for, for Biden and, and half the country now, unfortunately, is, is maybe not half, but a, a large portion of the country is now questioning the legitimacy of, of the election, which is really dangerous, I think, and mm. actually terrifying. So that's just my yeah. two cents. I mean, my take on, on why they're going so hard on, on like pushing back is that they have to. They, they, they like the uh, Trump and and the the majority of the Republicans have just sort of backed themselves into a corner where they told everyone for months it was like they're going to steal the election, they're going to steal the election, they're going to steal the election, and then if they just lose and then just be like, oh okay, they they kind of I think I think Trump loses a whole bunch of the sport the supporters he's planning to milk for as much money as physically possible over the next four years. Uh, <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right about that. And I think it's politics too. Like, and I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's smart politics. We'll have to see how it plays out, but I think there's a couple things going on. There's a runoff election for the Senate on January 5th in, in Georgia, which will determine the tilt of the Senate. And so firing up the Republican base right now is in their mind, a, a good idea. There is the campaign debt. And that was just announced today that Trump is, started a, a, a pack. Um, so a bunch of those donations are just going to flood into that pack and he's going to have, I mean, we have <laughs> some really elect, really interesting uh, election uh, fundraising uh, situations here in the United States that you, that you guys don't really have to worry about. Mm -hmm. So there's money, there's politics, there's a lot of things behind it that aren't just on the surface. Like I'm not accepting the results of the election, but I think you're wise to say that they did kind of back themselves into it. Like, what were they going to do? That did anybody really think he was going to come out and give like a gracious concession speech? I don't think so. No. Yeah. From the Doe standpoint though, it's really interesting because, you know, we've been watching all of this stuff unfold in the media and all of these different news outlets and how they're reporting it. And there's now this even bigger focus on news and, and how things are reported and who calls what. You know, I think from the Doe standpoint, we, again, stand really interesting in that, like, we are not one of the one of the publications that's owned by the six media conglomerates that own almost all the publications here um, in the U.S. And so, you know, for us, like, we keep doing what we do, and which is just publishing these narratives and these voices that, uh, you know, are like marginalized voices is what we call them. Um, and so, you know, we just we keep doing our thing and we don't really get swayed by um by the media and the news cycle very much. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 it's interesting. So we have, we, you know, we, we have this push and pull where we like, we do our thing and we like stick to our guns and we, we certainly, um, we certainly like love our, our different themes that we, that we uh, have come up with. And I think our readers are really into it, but we also, Definitely, like, I'll go back to kind of the protests and uh, uh, the George Floyd stuff earlier this summer. We knew that we had to be a part of the conversation there. Um, and so we have this thing we call On the Record, um, and that's where we publish timely pieces that are uh, 
outside of our themes. Uh, you know, we, we definitely want to, you know, do what we do, but we want to be a part of the conversation uh, in America and, and, and worldwide. Our, we just got out of a meeting earlier today uh, looking at analytics, and we have a pretty sizable readership in the UK, um, and we're proud of that. We have a lot of writers from the UK too, so we're only looking to go from there and grow. Hmm. So why the themes, actually? I meant to, I wanted to ask, like, what made you pick like that that idea where you yeah theme your, your months? Yeah. So when we first launched the first iteration of the dough, I wouldn't even call it the first iteration because we built a contributor portal. But that's a whole other story. But with the first iteration of like articles that started going live, we um, we published them once a week. And the idea was, the concept was, how can we get people to talk about something longer than the way they talk about news right now? Which is, you know, you read a headline on the New York Times or Washington Post or wherever it is, and in a matter of hours, you've forgotten about it because there's a new headline that's even more interesting or you know, maybe it's not hours, maybe it's a day, but at the end of the day, like it's very fleeting. It doesn't exist for very long. And so the idea was, okay, how can we get people to really discuss something in depth? We have to focus on it for a longer period of time. We pivoted to themes later because we realized that people's attention spans were um, not long enough to focus on one article for an entire week, but they were long enough to focus on a theme. And so that's why we pivoted to this. And it's the idea that, you know, we take, um, a topic that needs to be discussed holistically and we bring all these different perspectives so that you're still getting different takes and you're still getting new um, new forms of media you know every day to, to engage with different topics different perspectives different voices um, but you, we stay with the same theme so generally there's some cohesiveness to the discussion going on and and um, the discourse that we want to be fostering uh, you know, so yeah that's the idea of themes. Hmm. And I think there was, there was on the editorial front, it was sort of disjunctive at first where like we were posting an article about college admissions scandal. And then the next week we would have an article about something completely unrelated and people were like, what are these guys all about? And I think that as an early publication, what we've, what we're developing is basically if you open up a newspaper, you have your sports section, your art section, your business section, your international section. And we are doing that job of filling up these different buckets right now and as we progress and as we grow we're going to continue to have these different themes live on the site new content coming in and we're going to have lots of different subjects that people could come to and, and be stoked about another thing i would mention that's not really on the editorial front is uh it's a philanthropic uh idea too you know we were spending i mean milan can talk about you know we were spending a lot of money on facebook ads and the like and we decided that maybe we could be doing some uh some good some you know actual good with that money and so you'll notice each month we have this thing called the endowment and uh we give money to charities that are you know um tied to to that month's theme um and our readers can vote vote on that on the dough.com. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's been cool as like, a, and Milan used the word holistically before. And I think that, that we're accomplishing that pretty well right now. Mm, it's gotta be nice from an editorial standpoint as well that you, I'm sure you get a lot of pitches and being able to sort of like categorize them and say, okay, right this month we can focus on this thing. And, and I can just focus on stories that are in that theme. And perhaps we can go back to one of these in a month or two, or we can say, yeah, it's not right now, but we can come back to it. But it, yeah, it must be helpful for you to be able to, to 
to kind of filter what's coming in in terms of like what you've decided to write about that month yeah definitely and i think when we were a smaller team it was some it wasn't necessary but it was definitely helpful now that we're growing uh we can look forward to um you know orchestrating these themes in a more like a, of an ongoing rolling basis but yeah definitely it's 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 a certainly a, and i think it's unique too um and we want to be unique in everything we do so so I want to go back to something, actually, um, Milan, you said earlier, you said that that you are, maybe you say you didn't even want to maybe use this term, but you're, you're the platform. And, and that's like actually something that, that I've been, I've been thinking about quite a lot and I haven't, I haven't come to a, a definite conclusion yet on it, but is, is the idea of even just like a social media platforms as, uh, as, as a platform and, and how much like regulation and how much responsibility you guys should take for the, the opinions or or thoughts or or information that you're putting out there because it's a it's a big debate at the minute it's kind of like free speech versus um you know platforming hate essentially is is the basic debate that's going on there now but uh, you know how, how much responsibility do you guys like bear for for the actual opinions like whether it's right or not and whether like the facts that yeah. back it up are, are are accurate is is like mildly different to like i don't know i guess i guess you could have people coming at you and saying well you shouldn't be platforming this opinion because it's hate speech or because it's like damaging the discourse yeah. or you know there's there's a whole bunch of like reasons so we've had this conversation you know a lot of times i think as a company in a lot of different contexts right one of the first questions we asked was do we put a comment section on our site and this conversation came up because if we put a comment section on our site then we have to decide what we allow and what we don't allow. What do we ban? What do we not ban? What do we remove a user for? What do we not? Um, and then that comes down to what's hate speech versus illegal speech. We have to define hate speech ourselves. All of those questions were started to come up and we realized, okay, it's, you know, it's such a, it's not worth solving that problem ourselves because if you go on, you know, biggest publication in the world, you go to New York Times, there's no one really ever commenting in their comment section on the New York Times because everyone just takes it to social media on the Huffington Post, TechCrunch, all of them. Maybe they'll get five, 10 comments, but it's irrelevant. It's not a conversation. And so that was the first time we had that conversation. And then when we made the decision to not host a comment section and to focus on social media, the intent was the social media platforms are also already dealing with this problem. Let it be their problem. You know, if it's their job to figure out how people converse and you know they're working on that we'll let them do that and we'll let our users have you know that conversation in our comment section in terms of what we publish i would defer that question a little bit to colin but i in general i think the stance has always been um is this something that is either not being discussed or needs to be discussed and so if it needs to be discussed even if we as an entire team disagree with it you know morally even as a publication think that maybe it's kind of on edge we shouldn't be publishing it the i think the the guiding light is coming back to could this lend to a really productive conversation to you know changing people's minds or or hearing another perspective to then gain insight onto how common ground can be found whatever it is um the you know i think the common example that people like to bring up a lot is like what do you do if a white supremacist comes in and, and writes an article and says that they want to publish it and they're just talking about why they believe that? Um, you know, I, the general answer I think we give to that is everything's case by case. Every person's narrative is different. Every, um, you know, voice is different. The way a story is told is different. 
And so it's all case by case. Um, and, you know, in general, I think our work speaks for itself and, and the conversations we host. And I'd add, yes, we, from the beginning, have had a, 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 a very stringent rules of engagement. Like we won't, we won't stand for doxing somebody. We won't stand um, for outing somebody. I've had to tell people, it's kind of funny that some of the things that I deal with and some of the DMs I get and some of that stuff, you know, I've had to tell people many times we will not publish anything that accuses someone of an, uh, by name of a crime. Uh, I had a really interesting uh, story come in, you know, last week that I, it would have been cool, but you know, we have a, a person who is going to publish something anonymously accusing somebody by name of a crime. And we just can't do that. It's just murky legal waters. And it's just, it's uh, it's just not right, too, you know. And so the other thing that I would add to this is we're not an opinion website. Something that you won't see on our site that you would on Milan mentioned the New York Times or Washington Post is a straight up op-ed. Of course, our pieces have um, the tenor of opinion pieces in many different ways, but they are personal first person narratives. And so. Our pieces have to be informed by personal experience, life experience. Um, there's that audio, audiobiographical flair to them. And I think that when somebody kind of explains where they're coming from, and even if their opinion is different than yours, it adds that you know human element to it. Um, but yeah, we certainly have a nice stack of things that we've discussed and decided to pass on. And we've got a nice stack on the website of things that we've not passed on that people are real pissed off that mm. we publish. So yeah, I think that means we're doing a good job. Yeah. Was there, was there a particular story that comes to mind of something that there was a real debate about in like amongst you guys as to whether you should go ahead with it and you decided to? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, Which one you know, do you want to talk about? Colin? Uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, a lot of the Trump supporter stuff this last month was, um, you know, they were, so part of my verification process can, uh, when I get down in, into the weeds of it, you know, there are some converse, you know, people retelling conversations, um, people talking about dialogue, people talking about things that only you know, this person and their mom would know about. And so we have to kind of figure out the truthfulness of it um, with the author. And, uh, you know, once I determine that this person's legit, you know, and that this perspective is worth airing, then, you know, we'll put it up. And our number one piece last month was uh, uh, written by a black person who also happens to be trans and is a Trump voter. Um, and so that was controversial when it came into my inbox and my brain, and then it became controversial internally on staff, and then it became controversial on the internet, right? Um, yeah, that's viral. So, but I think it was important. I mean, I for me, speaking as a white male, you know, liberal, uh, or, you know, at least... Uh, yeah, let's put it that way. Cla classical <laughs> liberal, I think, is the way a lot of people... Yeah, yeah, right, right, sure. But, you know, it's important for me to realize that there are people in my country who uh, are different than me and have different opinions than me and live different lives than me that are, 
you know um and so uh yeah uh that that was that's one that comes to mind from last month and you know there were there were plenty um that uh were in our justice theme the preceding month and and, and over the summer uh when thing when tensions were getting pretty pretty high here in the united states that caused quite quite a kerfuffle mm. <laughs> I mean, was there a story you had in mind, Milan? Yeah, I mean, he, I, Colin summed it up well, but um, I, I guess, yeah, the one that I have in mind is when we published that uh, during all those protests, we published the one um, that was, I don't even remember what it was titled. It was like, I'm black and I'm against the Black Lives Matter protests or something. That's the, that's the gist, is uh, we had a fellow, a, a pretty conservative fellow writing about, uh who happens to be black uh, writing about black lives matter um not mattering i guess in some ways yeah and so you know that piece was a we put an editor's or colin put an editor's note on it i think it was that was the one time that it was like the closest probably we've ever gotten to publishing an op-ed um and it was also our early days of deciding what we published and, and not as well i think um right it was like our first month i think going live It was pretty, yeah, uh, and I think it taught us a lot of important lessons, um, yeah. you know, because people, people in our, people on staff were mad, were upset about it, um, and you know that that hits close to home clearly, um, and then obviously our readers, some of our readers were upset about it, but I, you know we I, th I stand by publishing that, and, um, yeah, and I think it comes back to what we were just saying that at the end of the day it was. This, even though that this piece is not a classic narrative like we like to publish, that's not a full, you know, uh, someone's life stories and such, it still hit on that mission of sparking conversation that we otherwise wouldn't have about a certain topic, seeing a perspective that is not popular in the media. Um, yeah, all of those points that we go for, um, it still embodied a lot of that. So I think, you know, it was still necessary to publish, but good learning moment as mm. well i mean i think the fact that the, you said that 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 black trans trump supporter article went or story sorry not article um, <laughs> went uh went viral and i think that that kind of speaks to the the idea that there's a there was a thirst for people to understand that in a way and and it might it might end up of be of being the one of the more extreme examples of that kind of thinking or if the, or like it's a very extreme like i know the right yeah. the right on the edge of 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 like like there's not many people i think could could put themselves in that category is what i'm trying to say and and to see to un, like if you can read that and understand a little bit of what they're saying then perhaps it'll give you a better understanding of of kind of the like trump support generally and um, which i think is super super important um when it's when it's such a huge thing like it, in britain we had this the the like a similar thing happened to the the kind of why the fuck did you vote for trump as we had like why the fuck would you vote for brexit like why would you do that why and we had a, and and trying to like actually understand um like what what was in people's mind when they chose to do that because it's it's very rarely malice like there's there's it's very rarely people saying you know we just want to screw the country up and we just want the worst option possible like 99% of people are going into that voting booth and saying yeah you know i i think this is best for the country and the, the, like i like i think this is what what like we need as a country and because that's the the point that everyone's working from generally or i don't know maybe maybe i'm giving people too much credit <sighs> 
<laughs> no, I agree with you. And it you're you hit it on the head. I mean, with Boris and Brexit and Trump, it's very similar. And I I agree. Like, I don't think say take the you know, 145 odd million voters or whatever, like what's the percentage of in, in the US in this last election? What are the percentage that they just want that they're anarchists, they want to burn it all down? Like not very high. Although we are proud to host many anarchist articles on our site um and you, you can see by their political persuasion that we have several anarchists who have written for the dough so you know we do like to get in there and find those you know those stories that that you can't find anywhere else and i think that those kinds of stories are what all service um service well going forward so um, you, the other thing you critique on the site is uh, you said that echo chambers and, and filter bubbles are are dangerous. And uh, like, w- what do you is so dangerous about that? So generally, I think I don't want to say dangerous, but they're problematic in that, you know, your echo chamber means that you are in your own bubble of whatever it is, news, media, um, friends, perspectives, voices. So you don't see everything else, right? If you have built this echo chamber around you, which social media does because they want to feed you information that it knows you like, you, one, are never going to grow because you're never going to see new information that's different or challenges you. And so you kind of just become this like static person that reads the same headlines over and over again and, and interacts with the same type of media. And you almost become distant from other individuals who think differently. Um, and you know, it creates a bigger divide, I think, between people rather than what social media could do or what the media in general could do, which is, you know, hopefully I, I, I would hope could, um, bring people together as being the, the better intention rather than dividing people. So that's the general idea is that, you know, when you're in your own echo chamber, like you're not seeing everything else. And our hope is that people who come and follow us, um, you know, we're the, I would say, one of the few accounts who, you know, day to day, our content will greatly contradict itself. You know, one day it'll be very left leaning, the next day it'll be very right leaning. Um, there's not a lot of media outlets that you can follow that'll do that to you and, and really challenge your bias and your 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 echo chamber. Yeah, I completely agree. I was just thinking if <clears throat> if I weren't working at the Doe and I weren't reading the Doe, then I would, you know, not have learned all these different perspectives and uh, seen all these different um, things. (laughs) I was just thinking about, you know, right now, Josh, in the States, we've got this disputed election, not really, but some people are disputing it. And, you know, I've seen, you know, on my Twitter feed and on when I turn on NBC or, you know, whatever you want, the lamestream media or whatever, (laughs) I'm not seeing uh, the same things that some of these other folks are seeing. And I had a really illuminating Twitter post I read, I think it was this morning, about what the headlines on a lot of the far right wing sites are right now. And, you know, some of these folks don't think the election's over. Some of these folks think it's still going. They think Pennsylvania's up in the air. They think Georgia, the recount is going to, it's up in the air. They think that the Michigan state legislature might turn over Michigan and so on and so forth. So we're living in two different worlds. And if we keep, if we keep that up, it's, it's going to get even worse and worse. Um, I, you know, I, I just hope that places like the Doe and 
you know, can, can, can kind of try to bring that bridge, that gap, because it's pretty scary when you see it happening in real time. And I think even with this election, it was really interesting was seeing a lot of my friends and family and whoever go on social media and be like, I can't believe that half of the country voted for Trump is what I was seeing everywhere. And I kind of sat there and I was like, you know, it was very clear to me that this was going to be very close and that it was going to be a pretty tight election. And they were like, no, we were expecting, you know, a blue wave. It was going to come and everyone was going to, you know, how does not everyone realize, you know, that, the, that we don't like Trump and all of this. And so it was a very interesting moment where I was like, yeah, I mean, this is the need for the dough. This is the need for the breaking of echo chambers, because if you're sitting your own, in your own world where you only follow people who think like you, media outlets that only publish things that you like to read, all of these things, then you are going to live in a world where you don't actually know what's going on around you. And so, yeah. It's, a, it's, certain, it's certainly. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. You're good. You're good. I, and it goes beyond politics, too, right? Um, I think that some of our stories in education were really illuminating around how COVID impacted teachers and students in a way that I wasn't really seeing. Um, and, you know, the nightly news. Um, environment, you know, our environment, uh, reporting, you know, same kind of thing, you know, people, firefighters on the ground fighting these fires because of climate change. And, you know, then we had a guy who doesn't believe in climate change, you know? So, um, I, I think it goes, it politics, you know, it's on the top of mind here right now, but I think that our model is applicable to all sorts of different, you know, subjects. Even our acts of kindness theme now, you could be living in a world where you think the world is burning and there's no hope left and there's no good people out in the world, right? Well, the dough this month, you're going to see a different side of that, right? Like there's all these tensions going on because of all the politics and, you know, world problems that exist. And it's not to discount that there is all of this happening in the world, but there's another side as well to say that, well, you know, Someone saved someone's cat the other day, or someone saved someone's life the other day, or whatever it is. Um, you know, there's a lot of good still. So, yeah, there's a need to break echo chambers for sure. And even in, and the funny thing you're saying that is like, even something we try to do it, even within that theme, we turn the angle on its head a little bit, and we've got a story from a guy who was involved in the Grenfell fire in London and went up against bureaucracy and couldn't do be as kind as he wanted to because of the bureaucratic environment of uh, London politics. We had a woman who ended her father's life uh, illegally uh, because there is no euthanasia in her state in the United States. Um, that is an act of kindness, but it's not necessarily, you know, uh, uh, giving somebody uh, $10 to get a meal. It's a little bit of a different angle. So we, even with it, you know, within our themes, we, we definitely want to explore the, as many interesting sides of uh, things as we can. I mean, there's a, the, yeah, like it's very easy to think that the world is all despair and, and, and awful at the minute, especially if you look at your Twitter feed. Although I have to say, I, I also experienced the, the same thing as you, uh, Milan, where, uh, you know, I, I had a few friends and, and my mom as well was talking to me and she was like, yeah, but, but Joe Biden's going to win. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> like I, I, I remember saying for like the whole last year, I thought Trump was going to win. And it was only about a month ago that I was like, no, I think Biden's far enough in the polls. And then on the day of, I was watching, oh, who was it? 
it was Ben Shapiro talking about the polls, about the, the closing polls in swing states. Cause, um, I was really curious to get his, his sort of take on, on, cause, you know, as a conservative voice, I feel like he's generally pretty reasonable. Um, I mean, he's the one that's, he's like one of the, the, the few that's come out and said, no, Trump has lost. Count all the votes. He's lost. Like, so I, I mean, <laughs> and a lot of people would have maybe not expected that from him. Um, but, but I was watching that and I was just going, Oh shit, this is going to be close because uh, he was just talking about how close the swing states had got. And so I was, I was more strapped in and prepared this time round than 2000, 2016 took, took me, uh, on a wild ride that, that, that night. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in 2016, actually, I was the only one in my family who predicted Trump to win. And I think it comes down to the same thing. It was this like I had this was before the dough or any of this. But I, you know, I had a lot of friends from the Midwest, from the South and uh, across the country, whereas my family really just sticks to the coast. And I was like, you know, there is clearly a movement happening here. People clearly like this guy. There is, you know, it's going to move a certain way. And I think that, again, it's more it's it's more of a testament to the fact that people live in these echo chambers. Like even if you your friend group it can be an echo chamber, if it's not a diverse friend group, you know you're rarely going to hear perspectives from people you trust. Um, and you know that's a whole other question about mm. the dose. Getting people to trust us and trust a new media or, or a new publication in an age where no one trusts the media. So yeah. I mean, what's the reaction? What's the yeah. reaction been like to to your guys' content? Because there's there's a, a psychological um, phenomenon that I cannot, for the life of me, remember the name of. But I I wrote about it a little bit in my book, and it was it's that when confronted with um, information contrary to like our and our our tribe like groupthink, uh, if you want to put it like that, or just like the the things that like we would like the the worst that we could possibly assume of like the other side of any argument that that sometimes it can actually like reinforce our 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 bad opinions of of that side. Like, have have you found that there's been like a an adverse reaction in in some ways, or or have you generally had like a, a pos- positive feedback? We like to joke that I get all the positive feedback yeah. <laughs> in the mailbox. I get all those lovely messages that I screenshot and I put in our comments Slack channel and everybody can put their hearts on it and have the kumbaya moment. <laughs> um, whereas, as you might expect, you know, Instagram, uh, yeah. Twitter with less of, less of an extent, but Facebook for a while there, that's where people can really kind of go at us, but then go at each other a little bit. Um, and, you know, uh, I guess online. Milan's really tuned in on our social for sure. It's hard to paint it with a like a broad stroke, though, of how everyone reacts to the dough. Because like Colin said, is my signal coming through okay mm-hmm. still? Okay. Yeah, like, like Colin said, right? He gets, from the writers especially, like they love the dough, I feel. Um, and, and from what I hear from Colin, right? It's all these people realizing wait a minute, there's a space, there's a place for me to share this voice and this narrative and for me to tell this story and get it out in the world and um, a sense of relief, right? It matters. And then um, not only that, but you get that story out and it's in front of a world of people, right? Like we have, I think, 400,000 people follow us on Instagram. Um, you know, a, a post that does really well, like the the, the transgender uh, black individual who was voting for Trump, you know, that... Uh, article was reached 169,000 people. Um, And so, you know, when you have that level of reach and that level of audience, 
it's a mix, you know, like people will come in and um, again, the best people are the ones that realize that these perspectives are that of the author and not of that of the dough. And so they stick around still for the next round of articles. Some people will be like, I don't even want to support a platform that's that's willing to to share these perspectives, which, you know, is is a sad loss for us in the short term. But um, long term just shows how much we need to how much work needs to be done to build trust. Um, in, in users and, and for them to understand what it is we're trying to do and um, the underlying assumption that they're going to care that, about what we're trying to do. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, it, it varies from people just saying, you know, screw you, don't ever, I don't want to see you again or hear from you again, I'm blocking you, all the way to people saying, this changed my life. Like, I am a newfound person. I thought I was alone and I was the only person who thought like this and there was no no one else out there like this. Uh, so, you yeah, know, we, we were from two different types of life changing. The ones that don't want to ever hear from us again and the ones that love <laughs> to. Uh, I, I, we've, I've had, I had a fellow, we published his um, first ever article and it inspired him to, now he's a writer. That's what he does for wow, a living. Okay. And um, he's, he's a, I think he has his third thing coming out for us. Um, by the end of the year. Uh, and then, you know, and that's just like, what's, I'm like at a teary by eye, right? Um, but we, and you know, I, I, I'm not in charge of our social media, but I follow it pretty closely. And um, you do see that reactionary quick to jump off board thing happening sometimes, which is disappointing. And, but I, you know, I, I don't quite understand that, but I think that's kind of a, a, a you know, a, a a 2020 phenomenon like just Get no there. and i'm out yeah yeah so it's 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 interesting to see that actually happen in real time the only thing i would say to people saying no i'm all is there's no this is like really wild and out there but um i've been reading um a book called this is not propaganda and it's about russian and sort of bad state actors attempts to um intervene in in democracies around the world using social media and the the theme that like some people have started to pick up on is is like slowly trying to like signal and push either individuals or outlets towards towards something that like just to just shift like an opinion or something that, that like there's there's not even like a like a, a enough analysis of it yet but there's there's examples springing up where where there'll be like lots of people saying oh i can't believe you'd say that i'm out. i'm never speaking to you again i can't believe you do that you've lost all my respect and anytime someone goes in to engage with it this like person just sort of like disappears they're like an aberration um like have you uh, well there are bots right i mean I've been seeing like a lot of, you know, apparently there's a lot of bots going on with the election mm -hmm. saying, you know, getting into different people's feeds, saying the exact same mm -hmm. thing. Like if you search a phrase uh, saying the election is, you know, uh, fake news or whatever, and you, you, you look at that theme on Twitter and it's like all over the place. So, I mean, yeah, God, who could even tell if it's a bot or a real person sometimes? Yeah. But anyway, sorry to, 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 to move towards wrapping up here. Uh, what is, what are the, the plans for the future? Like if you got expansion plans some cool themes lined up, like what's, what's coming next for you guys? So this will be released. Yeah. This will be released in uh, either three or four weeks. So let's begin sort of post like post November. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, post November, I can like call and speak to it, but I guess in talk about the editorial side. Yeah, I can talk about the themes, and then Milan can 
spill the beans on any other product things that he wants to. Um, yeah, we, we have a, a really cool uh, science and tech theme for December lined up. Uh, we, we're thinking it's the end of the year. Let's look to the future. Um, let's look to, you know, how um, our society might be functioning with its relationship to technology uh, going forward. What we're, you know, obviously uh, what experiences have we, as a, as, a, as a people learned about technology in the last few years and how it's affecting us. Uh, January is pop culture. Uh, you know, we haven't really dug into arts and entertainment uh, yet. And that's typically award season. Uh, here in the States, uh, we'll see if the, you know, Academy Awards are like us right now, <laughs> a Zoom. Uh, but we have some really cool stories about how COVID um, has impacted, uh, you know, the entertainment industry and, you know, musicians can't tour and uh, that kind of thing. So, you know, very uh, uh, definitely like super applicable to what's going on right now. And then I'll just mention that February is ancestry. We're talking about race and uh, where people come from, uh, what they know about um, who they are, their backgrounds, you know, um, some kind of uh, surprising stories about finding out, you know, that uh, they were Vikings or whatever you said yeah. Vikings before. So that just reminded <laughs> um, So yeah, just uh, some, some lineage uh, type things. And, you know, as I mentioned before, we'll keep um, on top of the news with uh, our on the record pieces throughout. And um, I think that is a pretty good summation of what we're up to on that editorial side in the next few months. From a product side, I mean, we're caught, well, as a, first as a team and as a company, we're growing a lot. I mean, I think this past month we've hired like five new people. Um, from an editorial perspective, from a tech side of what we're developing, product, copy, social media, like uh, there's a lot of growth going on, which is really exciting. Um, you know, our audience grows, so do we. Um, and so that's been great. From a product side, we basically are just grappling with the question of how do we further create civil discourse? How do we further conversations? How do we help that in any possible way? Um, and, you know, what we're working on now are, uh, are a couple of different things. You know, a lot of the basics of just updating our website, making it more user friendly. Um, a lot of the, you know, small tweaks that we wanted to add, um, you know, like just knowing how many users are on the site, how an article page interacts with another page, all of that basic work. Um, but then at the same time, we're working on a couple of different products. Like we're working on something called a bias quiz where... Users can come and um, take a, a quiz that's powered by AI and machine learning, and and learn more about themselves. Um, and on the flip side, we you know make our contributors take that quiz so that when you come in and you're a reader, you get a lot of this information about the writer and the contributor. Um, so that you know we still don't give away someone's identity, but you have some context as to where they're coming from, why they think the way they do, um, and you know I think a lot of this is just a part of the the greater goal, which is how can we you know, help evolve people, make them more open, have them think differently. Um, yeah, just, just getting people to engage in, in discourse in a more civil manner. Well, that seems like a very, very positive place to leave it. So, so thanks very much, guys. Thank you. Yeah, awesome talking to you, Josh. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, 
is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the links in the description below. Until next time, thanks for listening.